You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Hey, friends, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to tell you about my friends down at the 10th Ward Barbershop in downtown Pittsburgh, proudly serving the historic 10th Ward in Lawrenceville and the surrounding areas. 10th Ward Barbershop is a full-service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. I can attest to this personally. I went down there to see my buddy Kane today. He shaped me up oh so nicely, gave me a laser beam part in the top of my head. I look fantastic, and he didn't take a ton of time to. He is literally the best that I've ever gone to. Trust me when I tell you that. But you also don't have to take my word for it as much as I want you to. WWE superstars like Bray Wyatt and Corey Graves have all stopped in to see Kane at his barbershop, and they will tell you the exact same thing. Now, right now, as much as they like having walk-ins, uh, during COVID time, they're only accepting appointments. So the best way for you to get in to see Kane or any of the other fantastic staff at their shop is to go right onto their website at 10thwardbarbershop.com and sign up for an appointment. That's 10th10thwardbarbershop.com. You can find them down here in downtown Pittsburgh. Stop in and see Kane and tell them that Goober sent you. Peace and good morning, world. Welcome to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Bernard, and I'm always stoked to have you here with me again. I'm also super excited to report that I finally received my first round of the COVID-19 vaccination. My arm's a little sore. I got a bit of a scratchy throat, and my nose is a little stuffy. But that's all thanks to my immune system kicking into high gear. Overall, I'm in great shape, and I'm really excited to take one more step back into normalcy. I'm also really excited to bring you my conversation today with Sam Marshall. Sam and I have been friends for almost 30 years, and almost immediately from the time I met him, I knew that Sam was going to be somebody special in life. I'm always amazed and proud to see how successful he's been. Sam's gone on to live his dream working in music as an artist and an acclaimed composer. One of the things I love doing so much is talking music with my friends, and Sam's always been one of my favorite conversation partners in that realm. I think that really translates in this episode, and I'm excited to bring this to you. We also talk about our Limp Bizkit fanboy days, how incredible TikTok really is, and we mention a band that we knew from back in the day called VMC, which stands for Virgin Mary's How they were ever able to play at a Quaker meeting house is beyond me. Like, I'm legit sitting here trying to figure out how they were ever allowed in the building with that name, and it's just, it's just unreal. Friends, let's welcome Sam Marshall to the show. What's going on, man? Oh, you know, just living the quarantine dream. I, I, I totally understand that. I don't even remember the last time I actually did anything fun outside. <laughs> <laughs> Not outside. No. Now, inside's been great, but outside has been uh, has been the shits. So, yeah. how's uh? So, where are you you're are you still in? I want to say you're in San Francisco, right? Yeah, San Francisco. How uh? How has it been out there since uh, everything's been going on? It's been pretty good. You know, it's San Francisco, like they've got it relatively under control compared yeah. to other cities. I mean, they were one of the first to go, um, you know, first to lock down. They're really um, conservative with their data. 
Right. Right. So like if they start to see the hospital bed vacancy go up even just a little bit, they shut everything off and you know, it's it's a bummer. I mean, San Francisco yeah. has lost some staggering number of restaurants. Ah, oh, jeez. Uh, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's I, I saw the percentage and it was something like seventy percent have closed. Not indefinite not definitely, but seventy percent or so. I mean, maybe that's not the actual percentage, but it was high. It was way higher right. than I thought. It was It was more than 50% of the restaurants in San Francisco have closed indefinitely, you know? Oh, man. Um, that many sucks. have closed completely. Um, you know, like a lot of the nicer ones are just done, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was like so. Philly, too. Philly took a really, uh, really terrible hit. Um, I know that one of the restaurants that one of the buildings I worked at at 19th and Chestnut, um, they were closed. They had a fire and then they reopened and then they closed again for COVID and they kept calling and it's like there's just we just can't pay like there's just no money to, that's coming right. in and that's enough because they're doing the delivery but then they open it back up for like 15 percent occupancy or 20 percent. this is like you know we can't even be open on thursdays and fridays so it's what's the fucking point so yeah um it's really I mean, it, I, I it can't be understated the level of destruction that's been done to the uh services industry and i think it's really it's just like there isn't anything that you can do right now except to like, you know, donate to the causes and, and try to eat out as much yeah. as you can. But like there is it's just without that full open capability, there's just nothing you can do. So it's it seems to be everywhere, too. You know, as as I understand it, you know, and I'm no restaurant uh, entrepreneurial <laughs> expert, but as far as I understand it, the the margins are all always been razor thin with restaurants anyway. It's like one of those things where. When you do turn profit, you turn a lot of it. Like there's, you know, but you cross over one way or the other and like you can get yourself. I mean, so many restaurants open and close anyway, right? Right, right. And so, um, I mean, just imagine like, it makes sense. It's like you have inventory that goes bad <laughs> and like, it's like, it just gets destroyed. You know, if you don't sell it, you just throw it out. Right. And it's like, um, it's yeah. Terrible, like, man. You, I'm. It's and that's the thing. It's like it's it, that's the only industry that I can think of that that takes losses that heavily, you know, with their inventory and, and what they move. And it's just, it's terrible, man. I know, like I said, Philly's back on the upswing now, but I know New York has really, really taken a hit. Los Angeles is really terrible as well. I have a buddy who lives out there. Um, he works, uh, I think, right in like downtown Los Angeles. That's yeah. a fucking ghost town. He said there's just nobody around and everybody's so sick. Yeah, like there's so many people that are sick, like that everything is at max capacity and like, no matter yeah. what they do, it just doesn't seem to be working. And it's just, it's, it's the shits, man. It's just, <laughs> every it's time I feel like it's going to get better, it just gets, it's like, gets objectively yeah. worse. And it just, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's dense down there, man. I mean, Philly's a big city. San Francisco is not a big city. It's a little bit overcrowded for its size, but it's not, hmm. you know, LA is huge. Like, and it's such a like, gigantic i mean when you talk about la you're talking about like a lot of neighborhoods um and it's a really big space um and they, they intermingle a lot you know um so it's just it, you know it makes it, it sucks it makes sense i was thinking you know my wife and i were thinking about moving to la and we're kind of toying with the idea um just because there'd be more more work for me down there and my wife deanna she she works from home anyway like regardless of quarantine she can work right. from anywhere and you know san francisco is so freaking expensive um, i was gonna say is it still as as outrageous as i i hear it because my you know my wife and i've been talking about we're in pittsburgh now and we're eventually mm -hmm. the goal is to be out west but one of the places we really like is san francisco and it's just like we would just never be able to 
Yeah. <laughs> I just I don't, don't know if we'd ever be able to afford it, you know? I mean, yeah, now it's, I mean, it's like you have to work in tech. That's the thing. You really do because tech pays really well. But you don't, you know, it's like you work in tech and you get a good salary or you have good, con- in my case, you get good size contracts. Um, but everything else is expensive. So it's like, you know, we, my wife and I have really great combined income, but we don't have much savings. You know, it's like it, <laughs> it, 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 the cost of living, you know, even just down to the food and, you know, the location itself is just really expensive. And so, like, you're like, sweet, I'm making great money. And like, oh, wait, I still feel like I'm 21 and I have like almost no savings, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, it's uh, just it's but, it's but it is it's a cool seen... place to live. It's nice here. I mean, it's like really it's it's nice here all the time. It never gets above 85 degrees and never goes below 50 degrees, right? So it's like you have the beach and you have like all this great nature around you. Like it's, you know, it's all location, location, location. It's a great place to live. It's really nice. Um so yeah, yeah. it's kind of trade, trading off between I'd rather be house poor than and then be able to not have to the weather go under 50 degrees for the rest of my life. I felt like since we've moved to Pittsburgh, it snowed like every three hours. Like I'm staring out my window right now and it's just <laughs> the same fucking snow I've been looking at yeah. since November. I'm like, I can't take this anymore. Like I, I love the idea of going west and being in a like warm climate. Um, mm. But it's just like this is just this ain't it, man. Like it's cool to be here for right now. My contract has me here for a year. Pittsburgh's yeah. a really cool city, but like next you know yeah <laughs> it's just gonna totally. be on to the next thing so um well thank you so much for stopping by the show today man i'm really excited about this we have known each other i was talking to adam samuels uh last week uh yeah, for the yeah. show and um, yeah listen met... the, the whole thing was great you know, ah, thanks it was, it was great to hear yeah. you guys voices you know uh adam's always like he's he's a super sharp dude yeah you know, i mean we've known him for a long time always has oh. something interesting to say very well read has really uh <laughs> You know, great, great ideas and great thoughts. You know, it's always, always good to hear. I don't, I don't get to hear Adam talk about his work very often because, you know, when we hang out, we're really just catching up and goofing off, you know, as we used to. Um, so it was, that was, that was cool. Yeah, it was, that's what kind of what, what led me to ask him to be on the show in the first place. Same thing with you too. Like, I mean, the last time I saw you guys in person was at your wedding, which I think yeah. was, is that two or three years ago now? And two, yeah, two I, change. I was working, you were obviously getting married and like, we didn't even have a chance to really like catch up as much as I'd like to. So when he, I think it was a couple of years before that, when he was working with X ambassadors, we had just started kind of chatting and I was like, I really want to know like what exactly, how you got into this and how you uh, got to where you are. So it was cool to hear him talk about that and the new avenues that he's working on. And like, there's so much cool shit that he's going on, but um, I, I just can't believe that we have known each other since I think like 1995. It's like almost 30 years. I'm like, holy shit. Like, I, I just like it blew my mind the other day. And, and Adam said it, too. He's just like, I can't believe it's it's weird for me to think that I've known someone that long. At least 19. Is it 1995? Whatever. It's a Whatever. long time. It was a long time. I think <laughs> it was because really I, I know in fifth grade, I found that picture in my house. Well over 20 years. Of you sitting on the slide at Newtown Elementary School. And that's like one of the oldest pictures I could recall taking. And I remember sending it to you. I was like, oh, my oh, God, damn. like, I can't believe this was that long ago. Wow. Um, but I just it just totally blew my mind about how how long how or rather how quick time goes. But um, it kind of ties me into this like next point. I just remember like some of my favorite memories from high school was watching you guys play. Oh, yeah. In your band. You know, Lithium was the shit. Like, you guys just rock all the time whenever you played. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Sacred Grounds was the place to be. It was. Um, it was a and- miracle, honestly, like that, you know, because it was a Quaker meeting house. And <laughs> George, I don't remember his last name, but George was the guy who was running 
we basically like ran the shows that we did there. And like for those of the you know for those of you out there don't know exactly what Quakers are, Quakers are like they're the most peaceful people. Like that's their whole thing is they're super peaceful and nonviolent and blah blah blah, right? And we used to have like crazy punk metal shows in their <laughs> basement, and they 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 let us do it, like mosh pits and like you know. Yep horrible teens doing horrible things in the woods um uh, but that, <laughs> well the they, one band cool with it. the one band name that stuck stuck out to me like even still to this day was vmc oh of and course, the fact yeah. that they let us like they let them play at this quaker institution <laughs> oh like i just i will never not find that funny yeah i think that they was were just great like, george was super cool you know it was, it was a miracle that they let us do it i mean it must yeah. have been they must have made some good money you know they're doing it for the greater good <laughs> i guess <laughs> <laughs> keeping um, the doors open they got to do something the doors right open. yeah no they were cool as a kid hanging out at your place like i feel like music was always just a really big part of your life like i remember one of the first things we bonded on unbelievably was you know limp biscuits album and oh, yeah. like it just opened up so much like music that i had never really heard before and i always felt like you always had your finger on the pulse with things like oh you got to check this record out or check this band out over here and it was just like has that always been i feel like that's always kind of been something in your house though right like growing up like it was always just music was was just there prevalent right totally i mean you know my parents have musical ability for sure uh but i you know i wouldn't call them musicians you know like my mom can sing and my dad has a good voice too and he can play some guitar and some piano and um i think my mom used to play piano um so it was there um really it was just my parents were just always very supportive of whatever we wanted to do you know um and for whatever reason we all just started gravitating towards music eventually so my brother my sister are also musicians um yeah i don't know i mean if you could like boil it down to a, like a single influence in my life it would definitely be the beatles like it was like there was so much beatles in my childhood and i think a lot of people um have had similar experiences um there was so much beatles all the time and you know say what you will about the beatles but you can't deny their influence and you can't deny what a broad spectrum of musical styles they you know interpreted right um, and i think that that alone you know and i would listen to other bands after the beatles and i'm like wait every album sounds the same and then you go listen to the beatles and it's like literally every album is completely different sounds different they're all taking on weird personas uh-huh. um, they're like okay we're gonna do a jazzy yep. song we're doing do a hard rock song and then we're gonna do like this orchestral like theatrical ballad and they're all back-to-back tracks on a record you know uh so i think you know that really it, like listening to the beatles exposed me to a lot of things even though it was just the beatles if that makes sense it was the that was the first band i ever got into you know um and there was plenty to to get into you went to so you go to college but then you drop out and you start an apprenticeship in Hartford, Connecticut, right? Like yeah, very yeah. much a Jimmy Iovine kind of story, right? Like you yeah. just go and you go and, and, and you're there. So what what made you, what was the the catalyst for that? Like what was the moment where you were like, yeah, I'm fucked this, I'm done with school? Sure. I mean, you know, I went to University of Hartford um, and I met a bunch of great musicians there and we started a band and uh, many of us dropped out because we were stupid and we weren't ready for college. I mean, like, let's be honest, right? Like yeah. we skipped a lot of class, we got really bad grades um, and... I was way more interested in music than I was in, um, you know, just sitting around at college with no major and just goofing off. Um, And so, 
the deal though was my parents were you know they were like you know we'll we'll support you and help you if you're in school but if you're not in school you got to figure it out right you have to you have to work this out on your own so um you know i worked on getting this uh this apprenticeship at this studio that started out as kind of like a it was a really interesting program i can't remember the name of it but it started out it was kind of like a one-on-one class sort of thing um that you pay for um and they like hook you up with a studio and and a, and a recording engineer um and you know i wanted to stay in hartford because i was playing in a band and i had lots of close friends there and so um i got hooked up with this this guy named joe sanborn uh who worked at telefunken mics they make really super nice mics and he had this studio that was in his house it was a really nice house and he had this really nice studio in the basement of his house that was mostly used to uh, test and repair and demo these extremely fancy mics. Um, and so I did this sort of little program with him. Um, and, and, and that was great because it really, it gave me the technical foundation, um, for making music, uh, that I desperately needed and that I, that I still, I don't know where I would be without that technical training. And, you know, I don't consider myself, uh, an audio engineer by any, by any means, you know, when you're a music, you know, when you're like mixing records and mastering records, that is a whole other skill set that I really admire. You know, um, some of my favorite people in the world are, are mix engineers. Um, but having that sort of foundation, that backbone of like just how you record music and what equalizers do, how to use compressors, um, you know, I, I don't know where I'd be without that stuff. Now, working at that studio, was that what eventually gave you the idea to go back to college at that point? Was that like sort of the next step? You're like, I really want to learn it and I really want to fine tune that technical aspect while learning more of a larger scope? Uh, Sort of, you know, I I really what made me want to go back to school is I I just kind of hit a wall um, creatively and in my career. And, um, you know, I'd been playing in this band for a while that we just really, we wrote tons of songs, you know, we wrote tons of songs that I'm really proud of, but we never really like, you know, we didn't play a lot of shows and we were like always in between drummers, which is like the classic, you know, story. (laughs) (laughs) Bassists and drummers are just always between them. Yeah. Yeah. We spent a lot of time writing um, and that was really fun and great, but we never really, for whatever reason, it just never got off the ground in a, in a, in a serious gigging recording way um and you know i i love those guys and you know, i'm still super close friends with uh, with those guys even today you know uh, actually i play D with with one of them every week um so you know it's all good right uh, but you know so that band just kind of fizzled out and everybody went on to do different things and um you know really i just kind of hit again like i said i hit a wall i was like i i'm not progressing one way or another like I, my writing isn't progressing. My career isn't progressing. Um, maybe I don't know as much as I think I do. Uh, Cause I was very much a person who was like, I just do everything by ear and like, I don't need to learn theory stuff. You know, like I played piano when I was a kid. So I had kind of a basic understanding of how music theory works and orchestration, really basic. Um, but I was of the mindset that like, Oh, all the great musicians, um, don't use theory to write music, blah, 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 which is kind of not true. I mean, I have a complicated relationship with music theory. Um, cause how you know, so 
just out of curiosity. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could talk about this the whole time because um, <laughs> it's I got like, nothing but time, brother. I got yeah, nothing yeah. but time I for mean, it. So music theory is interesting because it often comes after the fact. So if you look at a Beethoven piece, and I remember doing this in college, like you'd, you'd look at a Beethoven like piano, you know, sonata or something like that, and you'd be you could you could go literally note by note and analyze the thing and you're you know you have pencil markings all over the place and blah 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 you could turn it into a an absolute like you know like those decrypting uh equations they have in like perfect mind right like, <laughs> like goodwill hunting shit on the board right yeah exactly <laughs> like you could goodwill hunting a piece of beethoven's music all day long and you could debate and argue about the names and the nomenclature of things all day long and you know it's not that those things are incorrect but they kind of have very little to do with how the music was actually written. I, I would I would think, right? Like, I would think that Beethoven learned a lot of music, right? He learned a lot of Mozart and Bach and, you know, the, the people who came before him. He learned a lot of music. He analyzed that stuff. And then when he wrote that piece of music, he probably just sat at the freaking piano and, like, put his hands on the piano and was like, this sounds good. This sounds bad. This is cool. This is not so great. You know, I find it hard to believe that he he mathematically wrote his music based on the rules of music theory. I mean, maybe there's probably a little bit in there where he was like, oh, I want to try and voice this this way. Oh, Bach did it that way, and I know the name of it, so I can do it, right? Um, but really, I feel like all the great musicians and composers um, of all time, across all generations and all walks of life and all cultures, really just came up to their instrument and started playing and just decided what sounded good and what didn't, you know? Um, well, so it sounds like it's, it's almost like when you say Beethoven too, the, the one person, as you were talking, that came into my mind for some reason was Prince. I think yeah. about the things that Prince used to say where he was like, Oh, I have six or seven albums, you know, going in my head at any given time. I don't believe that music theory was the first thing on his mind. I think he just knew what he wanted to hear and was like, okay, I'm gonna play this, and then it sound, you know, and then he would he would arrange, and so like that's kind of what you're saying, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't necess- I don't necessarily believe that either. I don't think I don't think it's as complicated as people make it sound. For sure. I mean, it's a it's a tool, right? It's just it's an, one of the tools in the composer's toolbox. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> it's it's just like a, you know, composing music is a lot of like tricks. You know, it's like a lot of like, ooh, like this. I know this works, and I'll try this, and you kind of mess around, and you experiment, and you're like, um, until something sounds good. Um, and and music theory is just one of those tricks. So it's like if I'm, you know, if I'm playing in G minor, my pieces in G minor, like I know what notes will work, and I know the names of things, but it, they're not those things work not because they're named something and because they're mathematically correct, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, the theory came after somebody decided that sounded good. And then they were like, okay, well, let's give that a name so we can remember it and use it again. Um, so, uh, you know, you have to strike a balance, right? And, and it's different for everybody, um, especially depending on what kind of music you're doing. Like, you know, there are kids that can like make EDM bangers that totally rule, you know, right. on their laptop. You know, I'm not going to knock them, you know, like um, there's you know people who make amazing music um, just with software and they have, they're none the wiser about what's actually happening, um, theoretically with what they're doing. They're just using their ear and they make incredible music, you know? So it's, 
you have to find the balance that's right for you. I, for me, music theory is most useful when you're orchestrating. So if you're writing orchestral music and you need to figure out um, what musicians are capable of, um, theory is really helpful for that orchestration technique. It's a whole other subset of music theory is like knowing instruments and what they can do. Because there's some things that like, um, you know, that you can play on the piano that's not so easy on the cello. Even if it seems simple well, on the cello, like, oh, they have to cross strings all weird here. You know, so it's like this is a weird string crossing. So they can't go back and forth super fast and get the sound that you want. So you might have to rewrite it and, and change it a little bit. Um, so that's where I found the theoretical stuff to be most um most useful. I know there's a big argument because, you know, I'm a hip hop guy. There's a big argument inside of hip hop about and even in music in general about the idea of sampling, taking somebody mm -hmm. else's work and creating a brand new piece after that. Kanye West is one of my favorite producers and he is a big sampler. That's what he does. And I know totally. a lot of guys that I've done, you know, that I've worked with are are they are sample heavy and sample only. Where do you stand on that conversation? Do you think it's it's just is it like, quote unquote, stealing or do you think that it is as as skillful and artful as other people would say it was oh i mean the latter for sure right it's like it's a different skill set you know it's a different you know you only have so many hours in the day right and i might spend my hours playing the piano or um, you know i make a lot of electronic music as well um and you know it's to say that there is no art or skill in you know i would equate it to like collage work right it's like you can see some amazing pieces of visual art that are made of collages and found objects so to speak um, and they're incredible right it's like you can make art out of magazine clippings like why can't you make art out of samples um, you know and I, I in my world like I do a lot of like those techniques like I don't sample stuff very often because it gets me you know it would it would get me into some hot water when you're like hired to create original compositions and then you have to worry about licensing is really what it is. Um, and, you know, paying the artist who made the sample, you know, should get their fair share. You know, that's really the, the only stance I have. You know, if you're using somebody else's sample without them knowing or they, they should know or you need to mangle it so hard that you can't tell what it is. But if you're quoting somebody else's work, like they need to get credit for that and they need to get paid for it. But I don't, I wouldn't say it's off limits, you know? I would be flattered if somebody um, wanted to sample my music. And honestly, like is, you know, a lot of the work I do ends up being owned by somebody else. It's like a lot of composers. When you're working in like, especially in video games, they just, you know, the work I do for Sony, they just buy it straight up. You know, they, I just sell the music and I don't own the music anymore. And usually there's some kind of contract in there that says, hey, you're going to get 10% of streaming royalties or something, which is nothing, right? Um, which is not why, you know, it's not why you do it. Um, you know, it's all work for hire. So, like, you know, I write a piece of music and I sell it to whoever, to Sony. And if somebody came up to me and said, hey, man, I really want to sample your music, I would be like, you're going to have to talk to Sony because I don't own that. But, I, but if I did own the music and some kid wanted to be like hey can i use your sample on this i would be like great i'd be flattered you know i'd be like sure you know um and if you make some cash you know just don't forget about me um 
you know, if you if you hit it big, you know, take me with you, basically. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like that's I feel like that's most people's stances, though. I just I, I I have a hard time with people who look at me with a straight face and be like, oh, sampling's the easiest thing in the world. Like, have mm-hmm. you listened to All of the Lights by Kanye West? Have you ever yeah. actually sat and listened to the composition that DJ Premier does? I watched that dude do it live on stage. He yeah. literally took the record that he sampled for 10 Crack Commandments and rebuilt it note for note live on stage that's not just something you could throw together right like that's not just shit you just do right you have to really know how to do it the pendulum you know the pendulum swings both ways right it's like if you can sample music and do it lazily and you can drag in pre-made loops and you can you know send it to a mastering house an online automatic mastering house and be done with it right you can do it lazy for sure but you can write regular music lazy too Right. You can go sit at the piano and steal something, you know, steal the notes from something else, uh, which composers do all the time. Right. Where you're literally like, I like the way John Williams voiced these, you know, French horns. I'm going to steal that <laughs> like verbatim. Right. I mean, you can write music just as lazily as you can sample it. Like, I, I don't think it's fair to say that um, that one is more you know, respectable than the other because it's all on how you approach it. And, and honestly, it really doesn't matter too. like, if, if the music is good and somebody likes it and somebody gets something out of it, like, I honestly don't care how fast it took or how, how complicated it was or how simple it was, you know, to be honest, some of my favorite, the work that I do, like some of my favorite pieces of my own are the ones that came really easy and were really like, they just flowed out, right? And it feels a little bit like cheating where you're like, wow, I mean, this this tune only took a day to do. Like, they, you know, I feel like artists put these this pressure on themselves that they need to struggle uh, in order to make good art, right? And, you know, sometimes that's the case. Like, sometimes you have to fight with a piece of music or a piece of art and then you win that fight or maybe lose. Then um, you win that fight and it feels really good, Right. Uh, but sometimes, like, the best stuff is just the stuff that flows. You know, I when I'm writing a piece of music, I usually put a kind of a, you know, an abstract time limit on how much I'm going to fight this piece of music before I just delete it, literally just clear the whole session or just, like, throw away the piece of paper and just be done with it. Because, um, you know, again, sometimes you fight with something and then eventually you break through and it's great. Um, but I would say more times than not, I will fight with something and then I'll, I'll hit this arbitrary threshold and I'll be like, this is crap. Like we're done. You know, I'm going to delete this. Like literally it's just a delete new session, throw everything away, start again. Cause sometimes I think you're, and this, I think applies to all types of art. Like your premise is really, really important. Um, it's like, if you imagine you have a blank canvas, and on that blank canvas, you have infinite possibility, right? As soon as you put a, you know, one stroke of paint on that canvas, you have narrowed down all the possibilities that it could possibly be, right? And you put that second stroke and you pick a new color and all, and it starts to narrow in further and further and further. And sometimes I find like my premise was just bad, you know, like my seed was bad and it wouldn't grow. Um, and again, sometimes you fight with it and you break through. I'm not saying that like give up. If it doesn't come easy, give up, right? Um Especially if it sounds good in here, if you're like, oh, I know it's good in here, you know, but it's just not good out there yet, you know, keep fighting. But, uh, you know, I get really excited when I find a piece, a seed that's really working and it's flowing smoothly. 
Um, that's usually when I know like, oh, cool, I'm on to something. It's easy. It feels easy to do. So I'm going to chase that feeling, not chasing the struggle so much. Foundation Radio is brought to you today by The Dugout. The Dugout is a brand new clothing brand that specializes in one-of-a-kind vintage and distressed clothing at an affordable price. I can tell you they sent me two really amazing pieces. I also have another one on the way. Uh, it, my, my first, my favorite tag teams of all time is the Dudley Boys. Uh, they sent me this really cool distressed retro t-shirt from the late 90s. I was just geeking out. And of course, I had to pick up something from the purple one, uh, Prince of the Revolution with the Purple Rain. Uh, just really fantastic stuff. Now, they do all of their distressing by hand. It's really quite amazing. And the other cool thing is that domestic shipping within the United States is always free. Now, if you go onto their Etsy shop right now and use promo code foundation, when you're ready to check out, you'll get 15% off of your entire purchase. So go on and follow them on Instagram right now at, at the dugout brand, follow the links to their Etsy store and use promo code foundation when you're ready to check out to get 15% off of your entire purchase. The dugout Thank you so much for sponsoring Foundation Radio today. So you uh, studied film scoring at Berkeley College of Music. Yeah. And then after that, you get an internship with PlayStation and you were hired to music, right? Well, it was it was during. So it was my last year of college. I I did a summer at um, at PlayStation's music department, the music group, uh, which was a dream internship. and I really had to like that. I really had to fight for. I, you know, that took me like two or three years to get that internship and to really to build enough cred because they had a really high bar. And I, I remember, you know, I met um, a fellow named Clint Bajakian. He's a kind of a legendary video game music guy um, at a at a conference um, when I was in college. Uh, he did a cool talk, and I talked to him afterwards, and you know, got his email, and kind of lightly bugged him. Um, for a couple of years and you know the first you know a couple times that I inquired about an internship uh, you know he basically said in a very nice way that is like okay you know maybe try again you know we're looking for somebody with a little bit more experience hands-on stuff because you know even as an intern they wanted the interns to be sharp and to know what they're doing Um, and so you know I just wasn't quite ready so but I you know I did more extracurricular stuff in the meantime I, I worked at um this uh, place called uh, Gambit MIT, which is like MIT's video game lab, student game lab. And what they would do is they would, you know, they'd have MIT students and they would source like art students from uh, different art colleges and music and audio people from Berkeley. Um, and uh, and uh, and actually, interestingly enough, a, a whole plane load of uh, Singaporean interns. It would, they were some connection with the Singapore government. Um, like the like they were trying to bring the games industry to Singapore. And so they had this cross collaboration between MIT and some colleges in Singapore. And so like I did this summer kind of internship thing with a whole bunch of Singaporeans and they were awesome. I love that. those guys are so they're great. Um, super, you know, super cool people. Uh, but it was very interesting. You know, there was, uh, you know, only I was in a small group of, of, of um, you know, American born people in this internship. Uh but they were, it was great. It was really fun. Um, and, uh, so anyway, so I did that internship and we made a game in a summer and I, I did all the audio and the music for that student game. And that was the thing that really, you know, that was the experience that I needed to have a resume that looked good to PlayStation essentially. Um, and so, you know, after bugging them for a couple of years, um, I finally, 
um, you know, they accepted me. Um, and I actually remember it was a very awkward thing because I had to, I was waiting to hear back from the Sony internship application. I didn't done my interview and I, I remember that I, I wanted to do summer courses. Like if I didn't get the internship, I was going to do summer school. And like the deadline for registering for summer school was getting closer and closer and closer. And I had to send this really awkward email to, to Sony being like, hey, can you please tell me if I didn't get it? You know, like, you know, at the risk of sounding uninterested or, you know, like I, I you know, I, I really want to do this, but I really need to know, like, if you've already made a decision, please tell me, you know, it's it's OK. Because sometimes people, you know, sometimes you don't get a job and people don't tell you. Right. Um, and so uh, but that turned out not to be the case. You know, they emailed me back a couple couple days later. We're like, you're in blah, blah, blah. Um, so anyway, that was a really long-winded way. Feel free to cut around that. <laughs> oh, it's fine, out, man. I cut love, out things I love that are this, interesting. Um, I love all this, all this granular detail, man. I really do. I dig it. You're hired at PlayStation, and then you do your first game, which ends up being Entwined, right? Like, yeah. That's your first soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. First real full-length soundtrack, for sure. And it becomes critically acclaimed pretty quickly, right? You know, the, the, yeah, people, you know, it was. it's not often, and I'm really humbled by this, it's not often that... You know, when a, when somebody like IGN reviews a game that they put great music as a bullet point as, you know, in like the, you know, the wrap up, you know, like, hey, this game is, a, you know, it's a 7.9 and great music, you know, is is a is a bullet point. Um, you know, I think I was a little bit of luck. You know, the music itself, too, was very forward in the game. You know, I, I don't know if you've seen the game, but it's, it's a kind of like a. It's kind of like a rhythm game. It's sort of in that guitar hero world, um, but it's very abstract and ethereal. Um, uh, but it's kind of like, you know, you're you're going into space and there's stuff coming at you and you need to hit the blocks and, you know, hit the patterns correctly. You know, it's that kind of uh, more casual kind of rhythm game experience. Um, and um, so the music was really forward. You know, it was like every level had its own music and, um, you know, it... In a lot of games, you know, we, we the stuff I work on now, and then like the more the bigger projects, music is kind of more background um, because, and it should be right. It's like if you're creating a game that is like a cinematic experience, which a lot of games are, right? It's kind of like they're really going for this like we're playing a movie vibe. A lot of PlayStation games are like that, um, and so like the the music is, plays a very very different role, right? It's it's more like in many cases, it's kind of doing its job better if you don't notice it, um, where it's really just kind of pushing the scenes along and pushing the atmosphere and being the vibe, you know, mm-hmm. trying to score what's off screen. Uh, but with Entwined, the music was like really forward, really loud. You couldn't help but notice it. So I kind of lucked out there. Um, so that, yeah, that was a that was a really, really fun project. It was a very quick project, too. You know, I had to write that whole soundtrack in um, less than six months. Wow. Um, but, you know, I was all like, bright-eyed bushy-tailed and i was like let's do this you know it's great um you know it was really fun i'm caffeined up let's do it let's get it done guys yeah yeah uh <laughs> you know the developer pixelopus is uh they're like the coolest people that's ever. awesome they're they're sweetest people um just like a you know they just like a fire hose of creativity and passion and they're all super nice i mean we're all friends you know like they're they're the best um because i've worked on entwined and then i worked on their other game, Concrete Genie, which was much more, much larger scope. Um, you know, that was their, their next project. And uh, thankfully they brought me, brought me back for that one too. 
so after these two, you get nominated for the Game Music Award for the best interactive score. Mm. Then you then you compose the music for Mass Effect Andromeda. Uh, and that was an you, interesting one. So let me let me clarify yeah. that before I yeah, get go ahead. Yeah. Um, before somebody dings me for this. <laughs> so with Mass Effect and I mean I'm friends with the audio director, so who's gonna ding me? But um, so Mass Effect was written. The Mass Effect Andromeda score was written by John Paisano um, and produced by the PlayStation Music Group that I worked with. Um, and they, the, the way that PlayStation scores games is really unique and interesting. And I think it's really why the reason why they do such incredible work, because they have this really unique approach to things, uh, and without getting into it too much and exposing trade secrets, you know, um, you know, they, they source composers, like really talented composers. A lot of these guys are like Hollywood guys. Um, and they, the source of these composers and then the team, the music team handles a lot of the actual nuts and bolts and scoring elements of it. So there's, a, you know, putting music in a game and making it play correctly is complicated. Is just a simple way of saying it, right? You, you know, the, the analogy that I always use is like, you know, if you're watching a horror movie and, the character enters this like spooky house, right? And the music is creepy, but not overbearing yet. And then the character starts walking up the spooky stairs and the music starts to crescendo and gets creepier and creepier, creepier. And they walk down the hallway and you know, there's something terrible behind that door. And the music, cause the music is telling you, right? It's like, don't open the door. Don't open the door. And the character opens the door and the monster pops out and the music goes crazy. Right. Uh, but in a video game, it's like, you can, walk into that door all the way up those stairs, go all the way down the hallway and then decide not to open the door and go back downstairs. Or maybe you don't go in the house at all. Maybe you explore the first floor, you know, maybe you go in the basement, right? Um, so you can't have linear music in there. You have to chop that music up into bits and pieces uh, and figure out clever ways to stitch them together. And I think it's a really big point of pride with the PlayStation group um, and in something that is now embedded in my DNA is that we want to make those transitions as seamless as possible. So it does feel like the game is being scored for you. Um, so if, if, if we do the job right, you don't notice all the transitions and you don't notice you went from the stairs loop to the upstairs loop and blah, 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 blah. Um, so essentially what they do is they source these composers, these really great composers. And from, for the most part, they say, hey, don't worry about all that fancy stuff. Our team are experts at this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so to bring this back around to Mass Effect Andromeda, essentially, you know, they had contracted this great music from John Paisano, great composer. Um, and they're in this editing process where they're trying to figure out how to actually put the music in the game and score it. And Mass Effect is a really long game. It's like one of those like really super long RPGs. Um, and they realized they just didn't have enough like ambient music. And they didn't really want to bother John Paisano with like, hey, will you go like, you know, turn on some synths and like rub your face on them for a, you know, for a while and make 40 minutes of ambient music. So essentially like they were like, Hey Sam, can you write a bunch of ambient music um, to supplement John Paisano's score? Um, and so I was like, hell yeah, of course. So, you know, plugged in a bunch of synths, you know, mashed my face on the keyboard and uh, made a bunch of, you know, spooky sci-fi stuff. And uh, some of it turned out really cool, you know? Um, but it really, it was, it was, um, you know, even though I, I wasn't the, you know, the principal composer, but that music did end up in a lot of places in the game, which was really, which was really cool and fun. So you could say, even to say that I ghost-writed music, ghost-wrote music for 
Andromeda is kind of a stretch. You know, I wrote some additional music um, that made it in and was really helpful to the guys doing the editing um, right. to make it all work. Now to go back into editing, the next job it looks like you took was the lead music editor on Call of Duty World War II. Yeah. So how different was going from, you know, smashing your face on the keyboard to now actually being the guy in charge of editing the said keyboard smashing? Like sure. what's the how how complicated is that of a of a transition and then how complicated is it to now be the person in charge of of making everything sound great? It's it's different, you know, there's a lot of like the stuff that I do um for Pixel Opus, which is the guys who make Entwined and Concrete Genie. I do a lot of that stuff. They're a small team, so a lot of people wear a lot of hats anyway. So I do a lot of that stuff anyway with my own music, you know. Uh, I'm in kind of a unique situation where I have to wear a lot of hats, uh, at least in that, uh, in, on, on those projects. Um, so in some ways, it was interesting to be a little bit more focused. Um, and, and really, you know, that, that position was less editing you know, they, they they don't really have a job title that's like music integrator, you know, because usually the music editors are also the people who are putting it in the game or they, they swap back and forth from doing actual editing in Pro Tools to getting in the game. It really, mostly what I was doing uh, was inside the game engine. And, you know, I was, you know, uh, me and Anthony, who was the music supervisor on that. So um, a music supervisor in this case is the kind of person who is, really deciding like where things go and why they go there and blah, blah, blah. And really my, you know, and I had some say in that and we, we did some um, spotting is what it's called when you look at a film or a cinematic and you say music here, music here, music here, it's called spotting. Um, so I did some of that too, helped with that. But really Anthony was the guy, the point person kind of like wrangling all the cats. And I was the guy who was, you know, the point person for getting it all in the game. Um, so like, you know, I was kind of down the pipe, you know, all these edits were coming in and I would put it in the game and I'd be like, no, this isn't working or this loop is weird, blah, blah, blah. And I would send it back up the chain and say like, Hey, can you have somebody fix this, fix that? So a lot of it was like on the ground work, like working at Sledgehammer, the developer, um, you know, I had my, I had an office there with some nice speakers and, um, and digging into the call of duty game engine and bringing up the level code and just macking in the you know, the music thing, you know, the music calls and then playing the game and making sure it worked great. It worked awesome. No, it didn't work that I, you know, when I tied it to that helicopter exploding, it was actually that one or whatever. Um, so that was really, a really cool experience. Definitely super crunchy. Um, uh, you know, very long hours. Um, and I'm, cause I'm sure you've heard of the, the problems with video game developers and, and crunching. Yeah, um, I don't know if you're familiar with that stuff, but uh, v- vaguely, but ex- sort of explain it briefly if you could. Oh yeah, so you know, and, and we're not the only industry that goes through this, but it's kind of it's you know it's been in the press and the news a lot um, the last couple of years. Is that so? Video game developers go through these crunches, they call them, and because uh, video games have very real release dates, right? It's like this is coming out this day, and video it's games also get pushed release. back a lot. They they do get pushed back a lot. Um, but Call of Duty always, you know, they come out with a Call of Duty every year and it always comes out in the fall, always. Even during a pandemic, it came out in like December instead of November, right? Um, and so Call of Duty is like a non-negotiable, you know, uh, deadline. Um, and so, you know, in, in game development's really complicated, right? There's a lot of moving parts. It's really easy. You'd be surprised at how much of it is really just like hanging on a thread 
You know, it's like these games are just like barely keeping themselves together. Um, it's amazing they even run, right? Like when I'm in like Microsoft Excel and it crashes, I'm like, what are you doing that is so complicated that you're going <laughs> to crash? And I'm just like, I'm literally like in World War II in this game and there's explosions right. and helicopters all around me. And like this game, it doesn't crash, but Excel does or whatever right. it is, right? I'm like, what is going on? So it's a miracle the games even run. Um, so anyway, so game development is really complicated and they have real deadlines and uh, these developers, um, you know, have to work super duper long hours and sometimes for years in worst case scenario, you know, they're working every day um, until very late um, for years um, and nobody likes it. Right. And um, the publishers don't like it. The directors, you know, it's hard to place the blame is what, is what I'm going to say. Um, cause the publishers don't like, don't like doing it. The directors, the, you know, the people, you know, that are running the, the teams, the directors and the producers, like they don't like it. They're also working crazy hours. Um, and you know, it's, it's a complicated issue because people who work in games are very, you have to be really passionate about it. Like you have to really love it to go through all that stuff. Um, so again, it's really hard to place the blame cause nobody likes it. But it's definitely it definitely wouldn't happen if people weren't so passionate about what they're doing. And people will push themselves really, really, really hard and are expected to push themselves really, really hard um, in order to get a game out the door. Um, and so, you know, a lot of companies are trying to re resolve this. Um, you know, there are some companies that are declaring like we're not doing crunches. But the reality is, is that if you and this is true with any artist, including myself, like if you don't give an artist a deadline, they will just putter around and tweak and you know they just won't finish you know like this is i can speak from experience like i've been working on my solo record for eight years and i've shipped many games soundtracks in between there right because i those had real deadlines and my solo album does not have a real deadline right. so it can you know deadlines can be really great for artists right um but like those deadlines are those real deadlines is what causes the crunch. And there's really not a good, nobody knows quite how to solve it yet. Um, but it's, it, it really takes its toll on you. Let me tell you, it really does. And, um, you know, you don't see your family, you go home, you get home at midnight and then you pass out or you like stay up cause you're worried about everything. You're so stressed out. And then you hop back up in the car, you know, <laughs> the next morning and you do this sometimes for years. Um, and, uh, and it's, it, it can be a little bit, yeah, it can tear your psyche up a little bit for sure. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I don't want to place the blame on anybody. It's just kind of a problem that everybody's trying to, to solve. Um, and I think there's some progress, but it's just, it's just the way it goes, right? Games are really complicated and they take years. Like, you know, these big games take sometimes a decade to make. You know, like, crazy. Um, it's crazy. So, I mean, yeah, like artists, you know, working long hours to get something out the door is not something that's new. You know, films are like that. TV's like that. Right. But with TV and film, you when you're done, you know, most films are shot and edited in over two years, you know, two or three years at most. Right. Um, and TV shows are like that where they get big breaks. You know, they crunch really hard for a couple of, you know, half the year um, to get to film and whatever and then the the tv show airs and they get a break right and they can kind of casually plan the next thing 
Um, and I think that's the thing that's absent from game development is that when you look at a, a timeline that's seven years long, um, you're just like, and you have to crunch for two or three of those years. Like, that's just crazy. You know what I mean? Like the, that sounds insane. That just sounds it, like, like torture. Yeah. 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 I mean, and there's varying degrees of e- e- extremeness between developers, right? And most, most of the time it's the last year of, of, of a game development that is, uh, super crunchy, um. But uh, but they keep you know people keep coming back for more right I'm I'm still coming back for more even <laughs> you know it's it's really satisfying like when it works it works and it's great now I want to go back and I want to ask you about your solo project because now I'm even more curious oh. about your solo project yeah. what's uh what's doing with that what do you uh what do you have going on there you know I just I, I have these songs that I've written you know because I you know I came from playing in bands and you know being a songwriter like that's those those are my roots right. Um, and I've and I've kind of moved into being a more composery writer, but my roots are in songwriting. And you know, I've just been working on you know I have uh, like eight or ten songs, and some are you know some are eight years old, and some are a year old that I've been just kind of picking away at. Uh, I'm going to be releasing something soon, and it's 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 kind of a it's it's all kind of weird music. Like you know, I really like um, you know I don't like to play the it's like this meets this kind of thing but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, I, I would say that the music that I'm writing is kind of like nine inch nails meets. They might be giants. If that's, <laughs> if that's, that like, makes total sense. Yeah. That's kind of a strange... That actually makes total sense. Yeah. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it is serious, but it's not. Um, so uh, I'm actually, you know, I'm finally finishing one, you know, something will be out there fairly soon within the next couple of months. You know, it's not, it's also not a priority for me. You know, I, I'm not expecting, you know, it's all for me. You know, I'm not expecting to put that crap on Spotify and it blows up or, you know, it becomes a TikTok sound or whatever, you know, <laughs> however you blow up today. I don't know. I mean, um, if you end up as a TikTok sound that you're pretty much made at that, that would point. Be huge, like you're yeah. just a made guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't care if it does. I freaking love TikTok. I do. <laughs> I can't it's, do it's, TikTok, man. I'm, I'm old a, now. Like I, I, know. I signed up. It's not for us. T- it's not. And it's not geared. None of this shit's geared for us, man. Yeah. I signed up for it just so my kids would think it was like I was cool. Yeah. Like my old, you know, my oldest is seven now. And, and you know, over the pandemic, we're like, well, we need shit to do. So it's like, all right, well, let me make a TikTok. And we had a couple funny videos, yeah. but like some of these folks are so professional. I mean, it's like a, I know. it's like a production that they do with these things. And I'm like, how do you even have time? Like, first of all, where do you find the time to do this? Second of all, where do you find the tech to do something like this on, <laughs> on TikTok? Because my app doesn't look like this in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Everything is just, it, they, it's just they edit it in like Premiere and shit, you know, they'll, yeah, yeah, and then they'll edit it and they'll put it back on their phone. They'll airdrop it to their phone and update. <laughs> Dude, I fucking just, love TikTok. It's, it's, it's crazy, so, man. it's, you know, like a lot of social media is like this, right? When it first started to creep up Instagram and Facebook there's this trait of social media that I find interesting that is it's, it really highlights and magnifies all the best and worst things about humanity. Right. So like, and TikTok is like, Oh man, it's, it's, it's that telescoped even farther. Um, You know, where you have the, like you said, these really professional videos or like sometimes there's like really abstract, weird, Uh cool stuff. And like some really just like funny as hell shit. I'm just like, that was fucking hilarious. That was so clever. And then on the other side of it, it's like glorification of, uh, superficial things. You know what I mean? And of like, you know, appearances and blah, blah, blah. 
Um, and like people are like, make $400 in a half an hour with this simple trick. You know, it's like glorifying all these things that, you know, humanity is trying to like, at least in my opinion, like we don't, it's very unenlightened. I'll say it that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very <laughs> it's like lowest like, common denominator. Like All these yeah, very like visceral. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, sex, crudeness, violence, money making, blah, blah, blah. Not that I, you know, uh, of course I'm like sex positive person, but you know what I'm right. saying? It's, it's that yeah, it's, corner of it. That's just like a pointless and superficial. It's low, it's low budget, right? Like there's no thought low budget. Into it. It's not. Yeah. It's not. There's yeah. nothing there. That's actually like provoking thought. Yeah. I get it. So, it's, yeah. it's for sure. I, you know, I just, uh, the absurdity. Some of the stuff that I see online now is the absurd. Like I'm a huge. As I've gotten older, I've become this huge, like bigger Monty Python fan, just because. Oh of yeah. The, because of the absurd nature of it, anything that is just outrageous, I'll just fucking like just laugh my ass off for probably a good I'm twenty you, minutes. Man. And it's just like that. I think are those are my favorite parts on on the sort of excesses of social media. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. I just I I. I feel like now, like the, the metric and Adam and I sort of touched on this on the show too. Like, I, I feel like the metrics have changed in a lot of ways for people to deliver content to other people. Right. Yeah. I mean, we were lucky. We were in the generation that grew up learning social media and becoming the, the sort of the pioneers of the tech movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're, it's moving and progressing so quickly and it, it's moving so fast that it's like, how does someone, like, like imagine, and I asked him the same question too. Like imagine someone like Nas or Biggie Smalls or even somebody like a Trent Reznor, right? To tie yeah. it back into into that world. Like imagine them producing that same sort of content now and trying to find an audience. It would be virtually oh, yeah. impossible. I mean, and I, I, just, I feel like a lot of creators and artists just sort of stop before they get started because they feel like there's no avenue for them. Do you feel like that's like, do you agree with that sentiment or do you think it's easier oh. than ever for people to get, to get ahead? No, I think that was a, a, a beautiful way of... Uh of of saying it i mean honestly that's you know when it comes to my own music that's the thing where i'm just like i'm not even gonna try <laughs> you know what I mean? i'm not even gonna try to blow up on whatever and because it really is work man like you really have to like you have to commit your you know you got to make your three tiktoks a day or whatever and you got to be like posting on instagram you got to be doing this or that um because everybody else is doing it and there's so much competition right um uh, it's like yeah, I'm like I don't even I'm not even, I don't even have the energy for that. I don't even care, you know, <laughs> like that much. I'm like, you know, I have my I found my niche, you know, essentially getting big companies to pay for me to make music instead of consumers. Uh and that's right. worked out for me. Um and, you know, and I, I you know, even though they're big companies, I I love the projects that I work on. Um so, you know, there's no no conflict of interests there, right? Um right. You know, that's the interesting thing about the music industry in general, too, that it's so hard of a nut to crack. It's kind of like that razor thin line we were talking about with the restaurants, like that threshold you have to pass for it to be worth it. Because it can be really profitable if you get past this invisible threshold. But everything between underneath of it, it's just it just costs you so much money and time. Right. It's like nobody buys albums. Right. Who buys albums? Right. Maybe like maybe our generation still does, right? Yeah. We might be the last generation that actually would buy an album, but I don't buy albums, right? Um, so it's like you gotta you gotta work for free for so long, and then you gotta go on. You know, it's interesting because it's like artists like you don't start making money on Spotify until you're in like the million user like active users range, right? When you're when you get up into like the million streams range per month or whatever it is. 
I don't know the exact numbers, but you know, then you're making like eight grand a month, right? If you have a million listeners, you know, or something like that, or like eight to 20 grand a month, um, which is a very good living. Don't get me wrong. Um, I might have those numbers completely wrong. I hope nobody's shouting at their computer, but you have to have a, my, my well, like, actually Sam, the numbers are 86,000 yeah. and four, you know, <laughs> I don't know where they are. Right. You have to have a lot of freaking listeners to actually right. get a, cut a yourself big, a paycheck. Let's call it a big fucking number. And then that's what we'll be. Yeah. yeah you right. have to cut. And it's not that big of a paycheck, right? Considering all the money that you've spent on gear and advertising and publishing and mastering and mixing and, um, and yada, 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 everything. Right. Um, so there's a lot of overhead and, you know, so everybody's default answer is like, well, you build your your base online and then you go and you play shows and that's how you make money. Um, but show playing music live is like it's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of monster. It has very high overhead as well. You have to drive to places. You have to sit there and wait for things. Right. When you could be spending that time doing I, I don't think people value their time enough. Right. I think right. that's really what it is. Like artists don't understand, they don't value their time. Um, and it kind of goes both ways where it's like, you know, they think they're like, cool, I'm getting paid a thousand bucks for this gig that rules. And it's like, dude, it took you a week to get there. Right. So it's like, you're making a thousand bucks a week. I guess that's cool. But you also spend all this money on gas and you also spend all this money on food. Right. So it can add up really quickly. Right. Um, and so like, yeah, you drove there and then you sat around at the venue for five hours waiting to go on. Like that is time that you could be using to do something else. You know, and I'm not trying to knock people who play live music. Like, you know, of course I like love live music and you know, there's plenty of smart, uh, you know, business, very business savvy musicians and artists out there who are totally doing it right. And they, they understand all this stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's a really hard entry point for people who kind of lack a little bit of experience or, a little bit of know-how, you know, you really have to consider these, these, the business side of things in music, no matter what you're doing, right? So if you're on my end, you know, like work for hire, you know, writing music, like I, there's tons of contract crap that I have to deal with and tons of business junk and to make sure that everything like holds together and that it's worth doing and that it's worth my time, right? Um, that I'm valuing my time correctly. Um, and I think that, you know, on the other side of you're like a performing artist, like you really need those, you really need to consider those things as well. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, I think too, and, and you sort of touched on it a little bit. I, I feel like you know the valuing of the time. Do you think that's just a reflection of the way things work now, as far as the instantaneous gratification, or do you think that is just because they they just don't they don't have the 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 understanding or the wherewithal to know how valuable their time is? What do you what do you what do you attribute that to? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I think that. You know, I think my goal in life 
at least career-wise, financially, economically, is to separate time and money. And I, I wouldn't, I won't claim that I'm doing that now, you know, uh, but or to at least to its fullest potential. But you want to try, you want to separate them, right? So, like, the amount of time you spend on something is not equal to the amount of money you get from it. Um, and so I just saw this guy, um, what's his name? Kevin O'Leary, uh, the Shark Tank guy. Yeah. He's like yeah, the yeah. bad guy on Shark Tank, right? <laughs> and he says some pretty upsetting things and obnoxious shit, you know, like, for sure. <laughs> some upsetting but, um, things, I love it. But those, um, and all of them, you know, are just like, sometimes you're like, dude, whatever. Anyway, but he did say this interesting <laughs> thing and that, that I saw the other day and it really resonated with me. It's like... um. It's like if you have a salary, right, a yearly salary, it's like you are – your time is valued extremely specifically like down to the minute. Like this is how much a minute is worth in a year, right? So if you like take all the minutes in a year and you divide it by whatever, 50,000. Let's say the salary is 50,000. You divide it by 50,000, you have a number. It's like I make a dollar twenty-eight a year you know, per minute for this year, right? Uh, and that can be, it's great for some people, you know, to, to have that security is, is great. Um, but basically he was saying like, you don't get to my level, you know, counting how much money you're making per minute, you know? Um, and so I guess like that's without, you know, stepping all over people and being a greedy son of a bitch. Um, you know, I, like I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. Like, how do I have, how, how do I have my you know, my hourly rate not be stagnant, right? Or like just throw away the hourly rate completely. Cause I know in my in my world, like like we were talking about before, like sometimes I write a piece of music and it happens super fast. It's like boom. Right? Like I don't want to be paid hourly for the music that I write really quickly. Like that stinks. You know what I mean? Right. Like <laughs> why 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 am I being punished for being efficient and uh you know and and, and having a, a great understanding of my craft and being able to do something really efficiently and good. Right. And then the other hand, like sometimes things take me a long time. Right. Um, and on the other hand, like I don't want to, it doesn't seem fair for me to charge more because something took me longer. And that was my thing, you know, like that was my stuff that made that take longer. Like why it doesn't make sense. So for music is, you know, most of the time, at least the way that I charge for music is per minute. And most composers do this, right? Per minute of done music, right? So it's like, if, you, if you're writing 10 minutes of music, you, you pay this much. And it doesn't matter how long it took you to do it. And I think it's great for both parties, right? It's great for me because sometimes, like, you hit the jackpot and you're like, boom, this came really get together really quickly. Awesome, right? And if it goes the other way and I have to work a little extra hard on it, then the client isn't going to be annoyed with me because I'm like, well, I know I said it would take a week, but it's going to take three weeks and it's going to cost this much. It's like, nobody likes that. Right. Right. Nobody right. wants to work with that person. Right. Um, so anyway, that was a, a very long winded way of saying that. I think that a lot of artists don't, they don't understand how to rectify all those factors for their situation. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, they don't. They yeah, don't, I kind of got off on a tangent there. No, no, but, that's fine. I just, I, that's what I'm saying. I love the, I love the granular explanations. Yeah. The relationship of time and money is very complicated. And I think that 
artists especially and especially performing artists like really need to understand how this stuff is working and how they relate to each other because again if you play that gig and you get a thousand bucks for that gig that's awesome how long did it take you to get to that gig right how much did it cost you to get to that gig how much of your time um you know what is what is the value of your time and did it did it stack up i think that's the existential question right this idea of how much value your time is worth and if you don't know that going in to the equation and you don't have the passion to stick with it when shit's hard. I think it's, I think that's why most people quit before they get ahead because they're not passionate about, they see the flashing lights and you know, it's, it's the same in everything, right? Like whether it's professional sports or it's composing or it's podcasting, you know, you get into these modes and you're like, Oh, well, you know, I want to strike it right away. And I know I'm going to get there and you know, I'm not there within the next three weeks and I don't have a show and you know, I'm not performing. It's it, doesn't work like that (laughs) it takes time and resources and you have to really be into it all the way because if you're not into it all the way then it's 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 never going to go anywhere it's just going to stay where you're at and you're never going to succeed so i i do agree with him in that context where it's like i he didn't get to where he was just because he was focused on his hourly rate he got there where he was because he made himself that valuable and he showed that his value correlated to that level of success and i think i think that anybody can take that and, and run with it for sure, yeah. I, I think I want to say it was Steve Jobs, right? Who he he has this quote that's something along the lines of, um, "If you're not passionate about what you're doing, as soon as you hit an obstacle, you're going to turn around." You know, like as soon as you hit that first hurdle or that first brick wall, you're not going to want to climb it. Um, and so that's what that's what you know that's what's so important about it. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting concept, you know. I think I think there's a well, you know, a well-trod topic. And then, yeah, of course you have to be you know, passionate about what you're doing, but but you have to also have to be smart about it, right? And I think you have to be a little flexible too. Like I don't think that we like it's not going to be perfect, right? It's not going to be. It's probably not going to be exactly what you hoped it would be, right? Like that's just the way life is, right? Like I grew up thinking I was going to be a rock star. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to score movies. And like then I'm like, oh, I'm going to score games. You know, it's like it keeps changing and evolving. Um, you know, there's stuff that I do now that I thought I would never do, right? Like I, I, I demoed for many, many commercials. And, um, you know, high school Sam would be like, you fucking poser, you sell out, you know, like how dare you do a commercial, you know, for like demo for, you know, Dell computers or dial soap or some crap, you know what I mean? Um, and, but you know, now it's like, you have to be okay with things changing and, and evolving. You know, I, I think it's too like, you know, set your, set your expectations correctly. Um, and I think, I think that will help you out a lot too. Right. It's like, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be exactly what you want it to be. Um, and it's, there's always going to be problems and there's always going to be struggles. And even when you arrive, where you want to go, you're, it doesn't make it easier to sleep. You're still stressed out. You're still, you know what I mean? You're still have anxiety about all these things, if not more anxiety, honestly, you know, I've found that like, you know, I'm very lucky because I, I really, really love what I do. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but the level of anxiety that I have about things, about it all falling apart is it's pretty high, right? You know, uh, I, 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 I wish I could tell you a story. I can't cause I'm, I'm like, <laughs> There's, there's game, game development stuff is very secret, right? right so like right. things that aren't announced, I can't talk about, right? 
so there essentially there's like i can't even i can't even go into it um, that's fine right? <laughs> there you know i had the you know there's i get i get very stressed out about projects <laughs> and about new projects <laughs> and about whether i'm going to get them or not you know what i mean um because you know i do a lot of demoing and auditioning in my world and you know it's still like every gig you have to almost every gig you have to do some kind of demonstration for um, and it's stressful and it's annoying and you send your demo and then they don't respond. Right. right. <laughs> it's like they give you a full brief and you're like, great. And then you do your demo and you're really proud of it. And you, you think like, man, this is some kick ass music. Um, and I'm OK with things not being right for a project. Right. That's something I got over a long time ago is like, like you can't be married to your stuff. You know, it's like I'm you know, I, I do tons of revisions in my work. Right. So like I'll write mm-hmm. a piece of music and then especially the commercial stuff. And then you do tons of revisions. Like they're like, no, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. Right. It's a lot of that, which a lot of artists can't handle. It's, it's like, and something that I had to learn how to handle um, is people being like, that was bad. That sounded bad in my ears, you know, <laughs> essentially, like, and then, you know, they're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> varying degrees of, you know, politeness, right. Depending on who you're working with. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so yeah, I, I, I demoed for this gig recently and I, I wrote this cool piece of music and I was like, man, this is great. Um, you know, I got recommended for the gig too, which is always a good sign when you get recommended. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I was like, this is a cool piece of music. Awesome. I sent it out radio silence. I'm like, okay, cool. I did my professional follow-up email a week later. Just be like, Hey, just, I just want to make sure you got this, you know, cause I didn't get a response from you. Uh, and then radio silence. And then another month goes by and then I send the final, but super diplomatic email, just saying, "Hey, you know, it's it's all good, man. Like if you if you're going with somebody else, I'm sure you're demoing other composers. It's totally cool. It's all good. Just let me know so I can close this loop. I think that's literally what I said. Like, let me just close this out um, because in my world too, like I work on library stuff, like library music." And so what I do is that if I demo for a gig and I don't get the gig, I keep that music and then I sell it to a library, right? Oh, no shit. That's awesome. Yeah, totally. Um, so like it's actually it, – there's financial reasons too where I'm like, hey, please tell me if you're not going to use – if you don't like my demo, it's totally cool. I understand. No worries. I love you. You know, like just let me know so I can have my music back and then I right. can sell that, right? Um, so now that stuff is in limbo and you know, some, I mean, this developer might hit me up tomorrow and be like, Hey, so sorry. We didn't get back to you. Blah, blah, blah. We've had weird internal things going on. But, um, anyway, I was just, you know, I'm talking about anxiety. Like I get so much freaking anxiety about that stuff. Right. And I can't like, even imagine. Yeah. yeah I know how I, I know how I deal with my nine to five. Like I know how stressed out I am all the time. And yeah. I just, I imagine this like peaceful, beautiful world. Like once I finally break through with either no. the photography or the writing or the podcast or whatever it is, like no. my media enterprise. And I'm just like, fuck, it's gotta be like just as stressful. And I'm glad you said that because that's tempering my expectations of later yeah. on down the road when I end up leaving this industry and, and, and focus on the things that actually like you know make my life fulfilling you know and, and actually give me the the ability to be creative and, and express myself as an individual rather than just another corporate when you say things like high school we would high school me would be disappointed you have no idea how much i felt that because in high school <laughs> you can see me right now as a corporate shill wearing a suit and tie every day like man fuck this dude who the fuck is this guy you know? yeah <laughs> it just it just it's necessity right like you just do what you have to do humans are freaking drama queens man like we love it we love anxiety 
We do. We, we're upset. We're f- sick fucks, man. We love it. We create it <laughs> everywhere we go, right? You know, and the reason is because we used to live in the freaking plains and the freaking jungles, and anxiety yeah. was a great, awesome tool to keep you from dying, right? You were like, I'm pre- I didn't see it, but I'm pretty sure there's a freaking bear right over that ridge. I have so much anxiety about it. Let's go that way. Right. And then you'd survive and you'd pass your freaking genes on. Right. Like anxiety used to be great for humans. Uh, now we have anxiety. We still have it, uh, but we don't have anything to worry about. We're not going to get gnawed on by a saber tooth tiger. Right. Right. So our right. minds there's no dinosaurs coming. Yeah. There's no dinosaurs coming. You know, <laughs> we're not going to get bludgeoned to death by, you know, a great ape or whatever it is. Um, but we still have that mechanism in our uh, in our bodies and we're going to, it's going to use it. It's going to happen. It just, yeah. you know, it's, we evolved a little too quickly. We, we still have all this baggage from when we were wild animals, you know, it hasn't been that long, right? There's a lot right. of baggage and there's a lot of anxiety and we freaking love it. You know, humans love it. We, we keep doing it, right? We say we don't like it, but we keep doing it and everybody and we- does it create drugs to make us not feel so anxious all the time and you know it's just like it's it's for me especially as i get older now too i'll be 30 we'll both be 36 this year yeah um shit just isn't that important you know like i had i keep having (laughs) these like random epiphanies every once in a while and like yesterday i really felt like i broke through for the first time like you know i've I've struggled with with my anxiety and depression like pretty much my entire life but recently Mm -hmm. i felt like i've finally broken through and like you know, you lose family members, you lose close friends, you don't get the gig you want, life doesn't turn, you know, it gives you a twist or whatever. And it's like, how finite time is. And it's just like, why am I so fucking stressed about everything all the time? And like, you're right, like your brain is almost hardwired to allow that to keep happening, no matter how much you try to like focus or redirect or whatever it is. It's just like, it almost in a lot of ways feels like you do like, you're right, like you just love that shit. You know, you feed off of it. Your brain loves it, man. It's like, it's, there's a part of your brain and its whole thing is problems, right? And it's like, let's solve a problem. Let's have a problem to solve. And if you don't have any problems to solve, like, guess what? Your brain's going to make one. And it, it does it to me. It's going to do it. it yep. it's, that's what it does. You know what I mean? Like, your lawnmower is not going to do anything except cut the lawn, right? It's like, that's <laughs> what it's made for. Um, you know, there's a, what's that old phrase? Like, if you, you know, if your only tool is a hammer, every problem is a nail, right? Yes. Yeah. It's kind of like that, right? It's like your brain wants problems. It wants strengths. You know, it, it creates anxiety so that it can solve problems because it's a freaking pervert and it wants to, like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like a freaking sadist and it wants to drive you crazy um, so that it can solve a problem, right? Yep. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. It's like, hey, let's think about this at three o'clock in the morning, that weird thing you said in 2006. And, and I'm going to just sit up and stare at the wall about it. But like, no, like, why am I awake right now? Why am I even thinking about exactly. that? Exactly. Dude, it's so messed up, man. It's so, fucked up, I mean, man. just having, just knowing that your brain's going to do that automatically, you know, it's just, it, it's one step in the right direction. You know, easier right. said than done to turn it off, right? Uh, yeah. I think you have to go meditate in, you know, Nepal for a lifetime to get rid of that. <laughs> Um, most of us aren't going to do that. Right. Um, right. Anyway. So, Oh, that's funny. All right. I'm going to just cut back one spot here about the, the, uh, the rapid fire. Sure. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. But before we go, I love, like I said, chatting music with you is, is one of my favorite things ever. Um, and I feel like we've been doing it so long, but I have five rapid fire questions for you, um, that I just feel like I need answers to from you. Yeah. And I don't sure. just, 
Just give me the answers as soon as it comes to you. Okay. Len- Lennon or McCartney? <sighs> Shit, dude. <laughs> I knew I knew you the know first what? one was going to get you. I knew it. You know, honestly, both names flew through my head like in an instant. <laughs> like I couldn't, I still couldn't decide. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to go with McCartney, honestly. You know, as far as like, it's, it's a really tough ex- one. I didn't expect that answer from yeah. you, but I'm, I'm impressed. You know, his lyrics were cheesier. He wrote cheesier stuff. He was, I think he was a bit of a more musician's musician. Um, you know, he, it's a, that's a really, really tough one, but I think overall, if I had to choose, like you don't get to hear any Lennon tunes, but it's right. all McCartney. If I had to cut one out, uh, it would, I think I'd rather listen to Paul McCartney. Like I think, I think he, he wins as far as favorite tunes go, even if he's a little fluffier and sometimes his lyrics are terrible, you know, <laughs> man, some of that's just really, <laughs> but just like musically, I think his stuff was more interesting for, you know, for a musician like me, it's, it's, it's more is more interesting to look, listen to and dissect and interpret and all that stuff. So yeah, I'm gonna have to go with McCartney. That's a tough one. That's a really tough one, though. Prince or Michael Jackson? <sighs> I, you know, I I think Michael Jackson. Yeah, fascinating you know, choice again. Yeah, it, you know, it's one of those things because it's like hard to like. It's hard to separate the man from the deed you know yes and i yes. guess you know i don't want to take a stance on on the michael jackson situation because but it's pretty damning you know this stuff is yeah, so like it's a little bit difficult to ignore now at this point you know, yeah I we think, don't i we don't listen to michael jackson in our house we just yeah it's just a choice that we made it's hard it's to like, listen to michael jackson so i yeah. think you know i actually i changed my mind i think it's prince um even though i say it, like I have more love for Michael Jackson's music than Prince's music, like right. a lot more. But I'm gonna have to say, like as far as integrity integrity goes and artistry, uh, Prince might win that one. But that's that's a tough one. Um, you know, I, to be honest, like I was never a huge Prince dude, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like I like I respect the shit out of him, but I was never like really super into Prince. Um, and I think that, you know, Michael Jackson's music. Uh, was just more more interesting to me musically, you know. But Prince rules too, you know. Not, I'm, you know, not, but you know, it's one of those things where it's like, like I can't watch the Cosby Show, you know. Yeah, like no fucking can. way, right? There's no <laughs> way you could, yeah, not happening. <laughs> like, no way, right? And it's like it's it, you know, it, I can't not think about it when and when Michael Jackson comes on at a bar. Yeah, I don't listen to it. I don't go out and listen to it anymore. And when it comes on yeah. at a bar or whatever, like you're like, ooh, like. Even on the radio still, I'm like, and even still, we could tie it back to sort of like modern times. It's like, you know, Marilyn Manson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, like Marilyn Manson always just... sucked. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say it. Right? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Marilyn Manson's music was never good. I'm sorry. Yeah. I hope I don't get, I don't slaughtered for this one. But I never <laughs> liked Marilyn Manson. I don't even um, care if people slaughter me about it. I don't yeah. give a shit. Like I, I always thought his music of, was stupid and bad. So there, like, I, good riddance is what I say. <laughs> there were a I couple mean, of joints that weren't like terrible. Yeah. But like it's, I don't know, man. I just, I, I, I guess I'm not surprised. Right. Like I, I felt like he was the kind of guy that would be like this. You yeah. watch him and you see his personal, uh, the way he handles himself and the way he does things. And I'm just like, this guy is just a fucking creep like he's yeah. a creep and i'm i'm disappointed to find out sort of the depth of how far that goes right even somebody like west borland 
to tie it back yeah. to our history, Wes Borland has come out and been like, this oh, guy's I a saw fucking that. asshole. He's yeah. a fucking asshole. Fuck him and everyone that rolls with him. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy doesn't say shit about fuck, right? Like he's yeah. just there and he's the guy that's like, yeah, no, fuck this dude. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I don't I don't understand how anybody could even play Michael Jackson, like with a straight face, how somebody could play Michael Jackson on the radio at this point. Oh, it's hard. But you know, it's really just Quincy Jones was so, I mean, Michael Jackson, very talented, but Quincy Jones was just like, the the cat, he was the architect the architect yeah, like you know totally. if, if there's any like thing i can latch on i can just pretend that i'm listening to quincy jones record and not michael <laughs> jackson you know like i'm just i'm just listening to the arrangement because it's so yes. freaking freaking amazing billy jean the, the the composition of billy jean absolutely yeah um, let's just can i get the the instrumental of that I'm like maybe I'll, I'll listen to that you know can you just take out the vocal give me the karaoke version you know and i'll listen that's, to that that's, and i'll think it's great. i really I really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, big, big, uh, Biggie or Tupac? Probably Tupac. Again, and this is just on like music. Like if I had to stack up all of their songs that I know and do a like a you know like a pro not a pros and cons list, but like a you know my love for his music, Tupac's is more. You know, as right. far as like tunes go, like you know if I had to choose to eliminate one from Spotify, uh, you know, I would choose to keep Tupac. Zach De La Roca or Kurt Cobain? No, he's Zach De La Roca. I mean, like, Kurt Cobain, obviously Nirvana was awesome. I was never super huge in Nirvana, to Nirvana either. Like, I I, mm. I liked them just, just fine, you know, and they had some great, freaking tunes but i was into rage against machine you know yeah. like i was into them and they were awesome and they're just like you know they're just like it's songs about freaking police brutality in like the 90s man right. i mean i know this shit's been going on for a long time right and like you know some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses right that's just like those lyrics are like 30 years old i think like right. <laughs> literally right so obviously way ahead of their time politically. Um, and um, yeah, definitely Rage Against the Machine. Or definitely Zach De La Roca for sure. I mean, he's, I think he was more in, um, just by his political importance and his messaging, I think is, is more important than, than Kurt Cobain. I'm sorry. Right. I know Kurt Cobain's, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I know I'm that you, he's man. great and you. he was a great yeah. songwriter and, uh, you know, for sure. But, you know, uh, I got a lot more respect for Zach De La Roca, for sure. Final one. Trent Reznor or Maynard James Keenan? Ooh, you motherfucker, <laughs> dude. I knew it, it man. I love yeah, it. I it, would, it. Trent Reznor, it has to be, yeah. right? I love Tool, man. Like, Tool got me out of bad music. Like, I was into, like we were talking about before, I was super into, like, Corn and Limp Bizkit. And by the way, like, Ugh. I a while ago, I, I listened to... I hadn't listened to that shit in a long time and I listened to some early Limp Biscuit and I listened to some early Corn, and I didn't expect this. I thought it was going to be the other way around, right? $3 bill y'all was totally fucking lit, dude. That that album yes. rules. I had that such album. a good time yes. listening to that album and then I was listening to like uh, Life is Peachy and the Corn first album and I was like, oh God, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> Man, yes, same is thing. Bad. Same thing. I'm listening yeah. to Counterfeit, man, and, and like right at that, bah, 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 and I'm like, holy shit! Like this, it all came like, back. I, every lyric, I you know, like, what I mean, like, damn, like I knew every lyric in the album. You forget how hard that record bangs because they, yeah, you know, dude. then they did Chocolate Starfish, and it's just like, 
what the fuck is this? But like that first record was hard. Totally man. awesome, man. Totally great. I was so totally surprised because right. I totally thought I was going to be like, dude, this Limbiscuit shit is terrible. And Corn was actually pretty good. It was the other way around for sure. There's some, gr- I mean, there's some good Corn stuff later on when they got a little bit more melodic. You know, I, right. I, there's definitely some good stuff in there. Um, but anyway, Trent Reznor, Maynard, yeah, like so. You know, Tool got me out of all of that stuff. You know, I was like. Cause it was much more cerebral, much more heady and, you know, perfect circle was all dreamy and cool and really interesting. And so like very transformative as far as like my taste in music really started to evolve away from just like the hard shit. You know what I mean? Like I started to respect the pretty stuff, um, after I listened to tool weirdly enough. Right. And a perfect circle. I was like, Oh, I gained this appreciation for more melodic music. You know, this is all in high school, right? Early high school. Um, and, but to, to, honestly, Trent Reznor, I have to pick Trent because he's the one, he's the dude that showed me that you can, you can do it yourself. That I know he collaborates with people, you know, of course, and that elevates his music a lot. But Trent Reznor was like, um, his instrument was the studio, the studio, right? He's kind of like a Brian Eno guy where like, his instrument wasn't guitar. It wasn't singing. It was the studio. It was the recording process. It was like synthesis. You know, it was like right. all this stuff. Like that was his muse and his instrument was like recording and production. And um, I have to give him credit. Like if if I didn't get into Trent Reznor or if I was unaware of that fact, I probably I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Right. Because he wow. really showed me that you can do that stuff on your own and you don't necessarily need a band to do that. And, you know, working with other musicians is of course the best, right? Like they can elevate your music in ways that you just can't, right? When you bring in a real musician and you say, Hey, what do you think about this? What, what would you do? Of course, that's going to make the music better in, in most cases. But I think like him being the driving mastermind behind that music and being able to do so much on his own and make these great, records that were just like they were like genre it was so weird like you wouldn't think that something so industrial and distorted and really abstract there's a lot of stuff on those records like downward spiral and the fragile too that were like straight up performing arts weird stuff right it was Mm -hmm. just like it was just like weird ambient or just like noise. And like, it had such a huge audience. Like what a, what an amazing accomplishment to like bring this, like really, um, I don't even use the word edgy, but like this really visceral music to the masses, you know? Well, I think it's, I think when you say that the, the studio is his instrument, I think that's a reason why to equate it to something from my world, like Dr. Dre, I mean, yeah. the studio, the, totally. the, the production, that's his instrument. And that yeah, is, Kanye if, too, you ask, for sure. if you ask, if you ask me, like he is the greatest producer of all time, hands down uh, across all genres. Like yeah. there is no one who could touch Dr. Dre and his albums. He's a, a classic perfectionist and and he you know detox has been coming out for the past 25 years you know and like he releases this incredible record compton that is basically a storyline based upon the movie they made about nwa and i feel like that's why the two of them in their own collective worlds are are as as notable and prevalent as they are and why they work so well together which is like to me just like just a total genre bending of worlds but yeah i totally agree with that 
didn't he dr dre was helped with the fragile too yep he did right? a, he did a he did a production i forget what like he did. on a tune or two he helped yeah yeah he worked they worked together on that and they apparently they they collaborate like quietly all the time like they do records and stuff together or they produce or they do whatever they yeah. need to do and like i don't know if Iveen is the connect there or what but like i just think that's so fascinating that the two of them yeah. are so uh in tune in the same sort of context but yeah right sam yeah. thank thank you so much sam for stopping by i really appreciate it man it's always a pleasure oh to catch dude up this with is great super fun man uh, can't wait great to... great to see you great to hear your voice you too, buddy. Uh, always you too. fun it's been, to talk with you. It's been far too long. And once this pandemic is over, we're making, we're making our way out to see you, whether it's in San Fran or LA. And we're, cool. uh, that sounds we'll great. It, man. That sounds right, awesome. Buddy. Bring the kiddos. I love kiddos. <laughs> Absolutely. They will definitely I'm, be there. They've been yeah, talking unless about you want a break, like, which I understand, you know, but <laughs> we'll leave them in the RV. It'll be fine. Yeah. They'll, they'll figure it out for themselves. So. Yeah, just roll a window down. All right, man. <laughs> thanks, dude. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. Take care of yourself. You too, buddy. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by Adam Barnard. The show is also produced by Sam Kreps. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Our intro and outro music is produced by Dumb Ugly. Find this episode and our full archive at foundationradio.net. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts. This has been a Foundation Radio production. Butts Carlton, proprietor. Butts Carlton, proprietor.